The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. Trump acquitted, but not vindicated. Welcome to my weekly report for Thursday, February 6, 2020. Thank you for listening to this independent news, which appreciates your support through the donate button at buzzburbank.com. What a difference a week makes. On Sunday through Thursday of last week, because of new revelations in a forthcoming book by former National Security Advisor John Bolton, Senate Republicans did not have enough votes to block his testimony or the testimony of others from the impeachment trial of Donald John Trump. But by Thursday... Mitch McConnell had whipped his senators back into line, making this the first impeachment trial in American history without witnesses against the will of 75% of the American people. Even with a growing number of Republican senators saying they believed the president had twisted his authority, blocking witnesses was a way to get past the trial quickly and without the risk of witnesses leaving no choice but to remove Trump from office. Even after Trump's refusal of all subpoenas, Republicans in the Senate complained about a lack of evidence, accusing Democrats of a half-baked impeachment, even as the Senate was also blocking the evidence in plain sight right outside its doors. In the end, only two Republicans voted in favor of witnesses, Utah's Mitt Romney and Maine's Susan Collins. With Romney, it appeared to be a matter of principle since he had more to lose by speaking his mind. Senator Collins, on the other hand, had made a deal with Mitch McConnell. She would vote for witnesses to try to preserve her tenuous hold on the seat she occupies in Maine. Tennessee's Lamar Alexander and Alaska's Lisa Murkowski, who were expected to vote for witnesses along with perhaps others, folded under the pressure from McConnell and voted against witnesses. He shouldn't have done it, said Alexander, who admitted the case against Trump, quote, had already been proven and that there was, quote, no need for more evidence. Murkowski called the president's behavior shameful and wrong, but said she would not vote to convict. What a difference a week makes. On Friday, the Republican-led Senate voted against calling witnesses, against allowing new evidence. The vote was 51 to 49. The impeachment trial of Donald John Trump would be a trial without witnesses, presuming it could even be still called a trial. The way had been paved to fulfill Trump's dream of being acquitted. But he is an impeached president nonetheless, forever impeached. Nothing can change that, and nothing can vindicate him. Republicans had drifted from their claim that Trump had done nothing wrong to it was inappropriate, but not to the level of impeachment, especially in an election year when the people could decide instead in an election ripe for rigging. And so what if it did? Florida's Marco Rubio took it a step further, saying, Just because actions met a standard of impeachment does not mean it's in the best interest of the country to remove a president. The Senate had abdicated its responsibility to conduct a fair trial and had given Trump at least eight more months to abuse his powers, to demand more quid pro quo, and to cover it all up, without oversight from Congress that the Constitution demands. The Trump-publican Senate had set a dangerous precedent for the balance of power between our co-equal branches of government as the Constitution requires. And Republicans had also set a dangerous precedent for our legal system. Lead House Manager Adam Schiff said, If a judge or president believes it is to his or her advantage that there be a trial without witnesses, they will cite the case of Donald Trump. They will make the argument, Schiff said, that you can adjudicate guilt or innocence without hearing from a single witness, without reviewing a single document. Schiff called that a very dangerous and long-lasting precedent we all have to live with. Democrats called it an illegitimate acquittal. 
Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer calls it meaningless and adds Americans will know this trial was not a real trial. Even Trump's former chief of staff, John Kelly, called it half a trial. It's a job only half done, Kelly said, adding, you open yourself up forever as a Senate that shirks its responsibilities. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi insisted, you cannot be acquitted if you don't have a trial, and you don't have a trial if you don't have witnesses. History has now recorded 15 impeachment trials in the Senate, including two presidents. All of those trials had witnesses, except this one. History will correctly reflect that Trump was impeached, but not removed from office because of a trial without witnesses. It was an acquittal with an asterisk, a big, permanent, bold-faced asterisk. Although he had refused to come forward during the trial, John Bolton's book comes out in mid-March, probably with more revelations. Lev Parnas, an indicted associate of Trump lawyer Rudy Giuliani, has come forward repeatedly and says he's ready to testify for any government body willing to listen. And the revelation of two dozen administration emails about Ukraine that were being kept hidden by the administration. House Democrats have promised to keep investigating the Ukraine scandal and to continue to try to carry out their constitutionally mandated oversight of the executive branch. House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jerry Nadler says the House will now subpoena Bolton and that there could be more revelations under oath there. In the meantime, just as he had escaped punishment for eagerly accepting Russia's help against Hillary Clinton in 2016, Trump would now escape punishment for trying to extort from another country an investigation of his political rival. Trump lawyer Alan Dershowitz had told the Senate, if the president does something which he believes will help him get elected in the public interest, that cannot be the kind of quid pro quo that results in impeachment. Well, that's all the Republican senators needed to hear. Even though Dershowitz tweeted later, a president seeking re-election cannot do anything he wants. He is not above the law, end quote. Dershowitz had in that tweet finally spoken the truth, but that was not what he left on the historical records of this United States Senate. And that Senate is no longer a check on the president as the founders intended. It is now an extension of presidential power. Quoting historian John Meacham, it is not hyperbolic to say that the Republican Party treats Trump more like a king than a president. That, said Meacham, is a massive historical story. A former Republican congressman who now teaches at Princeton told the New York Times he's just been given a green light. He will claim not just acquittal, but vindication. And he can do those things, and they can't impeach him again. I think this is going to empower him to be much bolder, says Congressman-turned-Professor Mickey Edwards. Former Trump advisor Anthony Scaramucci adds, He's going to ratchet it up to another level now. He's going to be Trump to the third power. Falsely claiming exoneration nearly a year remains for a totally unleashed president who still believes, quote, the Constitution allows me to do whatever I want, end quote. What could possibly go wrong? The impeachment and trial of Donald Trump had accomplished two things, two small things. It did prompt some Republican senators to admit that what Trump had done with Ukraine was on some level wrong. And it did move public opinion against Trump, even if only by a little. By a little, I mean 2.1%. The website 538, which analyzes multiple reliable surveys, shows support for impeachment grew by 2.1% between the day Trump was impeached by the House to now. Opposition to impeachment only ticked down by one-tenth of one percent. 
the averages had grown to 49.5% for impeachment to 46.4% against. But given the margin for error, the numbers revealed public opinion hadn't really changed much at all between the impeachment and the end of the trial. And as the New York Times points out, that 49 to 46 is remarkably close to the 48 to 46 in the polls against Donald Trump just before the 2016 election. In other words, nothing's really changed in the past three years, three months, including the reality that Trump has never touched the 50% approval mark for even one day of his presidency. No president with numbers this low has ever been reelected. A new Politico poll shows that 50% of voters wanted him removed from office, 52% say he abused his powers, and 53% say he obstructed Congress, while only 37% say he didn't. The public had found Trump guilty, even if the Republican Senate had not. But the 2020 election is far from assured for Democrats. A new Gallup poll shows Trump's approval rating up at 49% now, the highest it's ever been, and up six points since the start of this year. Among Republicans, his approval rating has risen to 94%. Although independent voters approve of Trump at a rate of only 42%, even that's up five points since January. Among us all, he has a 63% approval rating on the economy. That's up six points since November. And that was before what happened this week in Iowa, which we will get to. In spite of the part of the Constitution that says senators are, quote, to be in attendance at all times during an impeachment trial, 20 of them were outside the Senate chambers as House impeachment manager Zoe Lofgren pleaded with them not to give up, adding, this is too important. Fifteen lawmakers were not in their seats when Sylvia Garcia of Texas declared, quote, the American people deserve to hear the truth. A dozen senators were elsewhere when impeachment manager Val Demings of Florida reminded them this would be the only time in history in which an impeachment trial included no witnesses. Save two, every Republican senator had voted against witnesses despite the oath they had sworn to do fair and impartial justice. Fifty-one members of the United States Senate had decided that although Trump tried to cheat in the 2020 election, we should let the 2020 election decide his punishment or lack thereof. But Adam Schiff had a warning for senators as he argued for witnesses. The facts will come out, he warned. They will continue to come out. Still to come outside the trial, possible House testimony by John Bolton by way of subpoena after the bombshell from his book that claims Trump directly instructed Bolton to help him hold up money for Ukraine to get investigations into the Democrats. Bolton writes that acting chief of staff Mick Mulvaney and Rudy Giuliani were present getting that same order. Also getting those instructions was White House counsel Pat Cipollone, who, despite the conflict of interest, would stand before the Senate as a personal lawyer to Donald Trump. But Trump told his then-National Security Advisor John Bolton to call Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky to get him to meet with Rudy. Bolton had also written that he observed Trump and Mulvaney discussing Ukraine on the phone with Rudy Giuliani. The Senate knew these things, but refused to call Bolton to testify, while the House would very much like to get its hands on him. Bolton had offered to testify for the Senate, but got no takers. The White House is continuing to block Bolton's book, saying it reveals top secrets, even though no Bolton book has ever revealed anything classified, and he has written six others. Giuliani associate Lev Parnas, meanwhile, had volunteered to testify for the Senate. To turn up the pressure for that, Parnas alleged that more than a half dozen key Republicans were part of the Ukraine squeeze, including 
Mike Pence, Rick Perry, Mike Pompeo, Bill Barr, Rudy Giuliani, Lindsey Graham, and Devin Nunes. That's the vice president, the attorney general, the secretary of state, the energy secretary, a key Republican senator, a key Republican congressman, and Trump's personal attorney, along with others. It was a week ago today, before the vote to reject witnesses, that a new recording appeared, one made by Lev and his partner Igor at a Mar-a-Lago event over a year ago. It was then and there that Parnas told Trump the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine was working against Trump, prompting Trump to demand she be fired. These are the Lev and Igor that Trump claimed he did not know, but what we heard from Rudy's employee Lev Parnas was all Trump needed to hear to fire Marie Yovanovitch. In a new media interview, Parnas said, when Trump would see us, he would call us my boys. Me and Igor together? It's not something you'd forget. Especially since Parnas had donated $50,000 to a joint fundraiser for the Trump campaign and the Republican Party. The senators were aware of all of this before voting to decide not to have witnesses. On Saturday, the day after the Senate voted to exclude both witnesses and new evidence, the White House admitted having two dozen emails about the president's thinking on holding military aid from Ukraine. The revelation came in a midnight court filing by Bill Barr's Justice Department explaining why it shouldn't have to redact copies of over 100 emails between the Pentagon and the White House Budget Office. The administration claimed that 24 of those 111 emails are protected by presidential privilege. One of them has the subject line, POTUS follow-up. That email is dated one day before Trump's infamous call to Zelensky. All of this was public knowledge as the Senate voted not to allow new evidence or witnesses in the impeachment trial of Donald John Trump. Monday brought closing arguments from Trump's lawyers and the House impeachment managers. White House counsel Pat Cipollone, acting as a personal lawyer for Trump, urged senators to reject the article, saying the president has done nothing wrong and these types of impeachments must end. Lead impeachment manager Adam Schiff said the Founding Fathers gave us a tool to remedy evil in government. Impeachment. Paraphrasing Schiff. They put it in the Constitution for a reason, for a man who would sell out his country for a political favor, threaten integrity in our elections, invite interference in our affairs, and undermine the national security of the U.S. and its allies. Directly quoting Schiff, they gave you a remedy, and they meant for you to use it. They gave you an oath, and they meant for you to observe it. We have proven Donald Trump guilty. Now, do impartial justice and convict him. Schiff turned up the heat, continuing, he has betrayed our national security and he will do so again. He has compromised our elections and he will do so again. He is who he is. Truth matters little to him. What's right matters even less. And decency matters not at all. Democrats fidgeted in their seats during the Republican close, especially Bernie Sanders, who, on the whole, would have rather been in Iowa for the caucuses. And with Chief Justice Roberts' failure to enforce the rules of the impeachment trial, Republicans walked out on Adam Schiff's closing argument. As is their practice, they simply refused to listen. On Tuesday and Wednesday, after mostly sitting, mostly silently throughout the impeachment trial, the senators got a chance to speak themselves, each explaining why they would vote for or against convicting and removing this president. Sandwiched in between those two days was what may have been Trump's final State of the Union speech. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, who'd invited Trump to speak, stood at the end of his address. She held her copy of the speech as though she were about to rip it in half when the camera cut away. 
She held her position, and when the camera's red light went on again, once she was certain everyone would see it, she ripped the speech in half. She actually had her copy of Trump's speech divided into four easily rippable stacks on her desk. She ripped each one of them in half, one right after the other. Pelosi had been ripped on social media ever since that moment, mostly, but not exclusively, by Republicans. Others argued it was the proper rebuke for a speech packed with what traditional media calls false and misleading statements and the unprecedented awarding of the Medal of Freedom to right-wing radio talker Rush Limbaugh. Also unprecedented, that presidential honor was awarded not by the president, but by his wife, Melania. The Medal of Freedom is the nation's highest honor, normally reserved for the likes of Rosa Parks and Mother Teresa. Tuesday night, it went to a man who has spread the use of the term feminazis to describe feminists and who's also attacked Native Americans, African Americans, and Hispanic Americans, the disabled, and immigrants. Although Harry Truman was the first president to award them a civilian honor during World War II, it was John F. Kennedy who made the executive order that established the parameters for the Medal of Freedom. That order says the medal is to be awarded by the president. It doesn't mention first ladies or anyone else. And by JFK's order, the Freedom Medal is an award for, quote, an especially meritorious contribution to the security or national interest of the United States, world peace, cultural, or other significant public or private endeavors, end quote. Awarding Limbaugh the nation's highest honor didn't rip pieces of paper. But in that moment, having Trump's wife give that medal to Limbaugh, Trump underscored the rip that divides Americans. The president of all the people was abusing his power again to further divide the country by trolling liberals. It was an own-the-libs moment, but the damage it did is much greater than just that. In the midst of his trial for high crimes and misdemeanors, the president did not mention his impeachment. In the State of the Union speech, he mostly touted the economy, and he produced a string of blatant lies, a record number of them. For starters, his false claim that he had reversed the, quote, failed policies of the previous administration, meaning Obama. There are fact checkers to confirm all this, and here is some of what they found. Trump promised to protect health care for people with pre-existing conditions, even as his administration is in court trying to kill the Affordable Care Act that provides for that coverage. He claimed, quote, the U.S. economy is growing almost twice as fast today as when I took office, and we are considered far and away the hottest economy anywhere in the world. False. The truth, economic growth in Latvia and Poland was nearly double what it was in the U.S. by the latest reports. Even the shaky Greek economy saw more growth. My administration has cut more regulations in a short period of time than any other administration during its entire tenure. False. The truth, there were bigger cuts in the Reagan and Carter administrations. Reagan wiped out a host of regulations on transportation and mass communication industries to name two sweeping cutbacks. Also false, we have created 5.3 million new jobs and added 600,000 new manufacturing jobs, something which almost everyone said was impossible to do. The facts? There is no record of anyone calling it impossible, and the economy has added 4.9 million new jobs, not 5.3, and 454,000 new manufacturing jobs were added, not 600,000. The current pace is actually slower than the rate of new jobs in the 1990s. Growth is slower now than it was in the late 90s and much slower than it was in the 50s and 60s. 
Although by some measures the economy is good, it is not, as Trump stated, the best it's ever been. In addition to several exaggerated or misleading claims about immigration in the State of the Union speech, Trump said, The border city of El Paso, Texas, used to have extremely high rates of violent crime, one of the highest in the entire country, and considered one of our nation's most dangerous cities. Now, immediately upon its building with a powerful barrier in place, El Paso is one of the safest cities in our country. This is completely false. El Paso was never listed among the country's most dangerous cities, and although crime has been falling in El Paso, the same can be said for cities around the country without a border wall. And El Paso's border fence went up during the Obama administration. And even before that fence went up, El Paso had the second lowest violent crime rate among 20 other cities of that size. More lies. On the subject of abortion, Trump said, We had the case of a governor of Virginia where he stated he would execute a baby after birth. This is false. Virginia's governor is a pediatric neurologist who once discussed end-of-life care for a child that was destined to die after birth. To say he suggested killing the infant is a lie designed to inflame the emotions among Trump's voter base. And it works. Trump made other misleading claims about foreign policy in that speech and claimed that in the Obama years, the U.S. and South Korea were on the verge of war. There is no evidence of that. It was Trump, in fact, who called Kim Jong-un little rocket man and threatened North Korea with fire and fury. The president was greeted in the House chambers where he had been impeached, greeted with thunderous applause from Republicans in chance of four more years. If that sounds more like a campaign rally than a State of the Union speech, it's because it was. It accused Democrats of being radicals and socialists of the worst kind. Otherwise, it sounded as though Trump was running against Obama in 2020, not any of the current Democratic candidates. Trump did not apologize for the behavior that got him impeached, and he never uttered the word impeached. And he did not try to unite the country. He fired up his voter base instead, a base that never grows. The evening was punctuated by groans and boos from Democrats. Some chanted HR3 to remind Trump that a bill to lower prescription prices was already languishing on Mitch McConnell's desk. There was a brief disruption caused by a father of one of the Parkland, Florida students who was killed in the gun massacre at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. Fred Guttenberg was escorted out in handcuffs, detained for two hours by police he describes as cordial, and then released after Nancy Pelosi's office intervened. He got a good talking to from Pelosi, who had invited him in the first place, and he later apologized publicly. Some Democrats never even posted for the speech. Others walked out. Most just shook their heads in disagreement, disbelief, and dismay. More than once, behind Trump's back, Pelosi mouthed the words, not true, it's not true, as the former reality TV host conducted his theatrics. The evening was punctuated also with game show-like surprises, a scholarship to a private school for an African-American four-year-old, a promotion to Brigadier General for a 100-year-old veteran of the Tuskegee Airmen, a reuniting of an American soldier with his wife and kids, and a medal of honor for a man greatly responsible for a nation ripped in half. The first Democratic response to Trump's live-filled reality show campaign rally in which the Medal of Freedom was cheapened, Nancy Pelosi tore up the speech. Early in his speech, Senator and former Republican presidential candidate Mitt Romney, once the head of the Republican Party, took a long 
12-second pause and gulped and fought back tears as he announced that he would vote to convict Trump on abuse of power and for his removal from office. There were gasps in the gallery from his Republican colleagues or former colleagues. Romney called what the president has done with Ukraine, quote, an appalling and egregious assault on the Constitution. At the risk of ending his political career, Romney cited the oath he had taken, quote, before God to apply impartial justice as he emphasized his religious faith. It was an historic moment. It was a John McCain moment. In his emotional speech that made clear the agonizing he had done over his decision, Romney admitted that the Democrats had proven their case against Donald John Trump. It wasn't a complete surprise what Romney did, but it made shockwaves nevertheless. At least two Democratic senators teared up over Romney's inspiring speech. One of them got so emotional he had to leave the chamber. The other, Connecticut Senator Chris Murphy, said through his tears, Glad I was in the chamber for that. But to Don Jr. and other Trump publicans, Mitt Romney's head would soon be on a pike. The backlash was immediate. Trump Jr. tweeting that Romney is weak. Trump Sr. tweeting a video accusing Romney of being a spy for the Democrats. Fox News talking heads have called him Judas and Benedict Arnold. Salon.com's Bob Seska picks up the story from here. Bob? Thank you, Buzz. We knew he'd be acquitted. But we didn't know exactly how it'd go down. I always thought there was a chance Mitt Romney would vote to convict Donald Trump, but I also believed it was an extremely remote chance, especially given how Romney, along with Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski, routinely pulled the Charlie Brown football stunt. Consider me pleasantly surprised by Romney's, yes, brave decision to stick it to Trump despite the Red Hat Army and Trump's knee-jerk thirst for vengeance. Trump was still acquitted by the Senate despite the myriad evidence proving he clearly conspired to cheat in the election by exploiting military aid to Ukraine in exchange for investigations into the Bidens. Yet Romney has emerged as the only senator on the Republican side with a measure of integrity. In fact, Romney could parlay this into a Senate role originally carved out by John McCain, the role of the cross-partisan maverick. Likewise, we can at least look forward to Trump routinely losing his spadoinkel thanks to Romney's vote. Yes, Romney owned Trump the same way McCain owned Trump with his famous thumbs down vote against the repeal of the Affordable Care Act. Trump will insultingly mock Romney's dissent at rallies and during Fox News interviews until the day Trump gratefully passes on, driving Romney further away from caucusing with his own party. Indeed, Trump Jr. has already declared Romney to be expelled from the GOP. Yep, Trump always makes things worse for Trump, and now Junior makes things worse for Trump, too. Then again, perhaps Republicans don't need their 53-vote majority. 52 will be just fine. Nope, Junior's an idiot. If perchance Romney begins to routinely caucus with the Democrats, it'll mean the Dems will only need to pick up a net three seats in November instead of four. The Republicans are already defending 23 seats in the election, making their grip on a Senate majority precarious at best. By making Romney expendable, it'll be even more difficult to retain Senate control. Thankfully for Mitch McConnell, Jr. doesn't speak for the majority leader's office. Nevertheless, Trump will never accept the reality that it was probably his own bad-mouthing of Romney that led to Romney's vote. Speaking of Trump's rallies... His routine mocking of Romney's 2012 campaign and how the Republican nominee allegedly choked while running against President Obama. 
Trump's blender on puree freakout against Romney will quickly bleed into the softened brain pans of his red hats, who will descend upon Romney's email, mentions, and voicemail like flying monkeys on cocaine. See previous brave remark. It takes balls of iron to oppose the Trump machine on a vote this important, but Romney did it anyway, and we should applaud him for it. The other thing to bear in mind following Trump's acquittal is that there was no declaration of innocence, just that Trump wasn't convicted and removed. Worse for Trump, the Office of Legal Counsel at the Justice Department ruled in 2000 that the Constitution, quote, permits a former president to be indicted and tried for the same offenses for which he was impeached by the House of Representatives and acquitted by the Senate, unquote. In other words, Trump can absolutely be indicted and prosecuted for his Ukraine extortion plot after he leaves office, unless a Republican president pardons him, which, at least for now, seems unlikely. If a Democrat wins in November, Trump would either have to defy the results of the election and remain in office, or he'd have to somehow convince the Democratic president to pardon him, which will never, ever happen. His only other option to avoid indictments, plural, is to resign before the election, allowing Mike Pence to become president, pardoning Trump as part of a corrupt bargain. Pence gets the White House, Trump gets a pardon. If Trump cheats thoroughly enough to win re-election and serves for a second term, the Chargers will still be waiting for him in 2025, most likely joined by an entire roster of other crimes committed between now and then. Oh, and don't forget, there's an IRS whistleblower out there who says Trump ordered the agency to stop automatically auditing his tax returns while president. Yet another crime. And wait, there's still more. The Supreme Court is expected to rule on Trump's tax returns this coming June. Bottom line, unless the next Democratic president orders his or her attorney general to drop all investigations while preemptively refusing to pursue additional charges, Trump will be indicted. I'm not a betting man, but I'd put actual cash money on this possibility. Adding to my Kofefe half-full outlook, Adam Schiff, Jerry Nadler, and Nancy Pelosi have already accomplished much of the investigatory work, and I'm sure they'd be happy to turn over their documents and other materials from the impeachment process. Think of this as a matter of when, not if. So yes, now that he's been acquitted, Trump will try to cheat again. He'll also continue his Ukraine gambit, especially knowing that the Russian GRU has successfully hacked Burisma. This isn't over yet. Rest assured, he will not go quietly. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thank you, Bob. Get more of Mr. Seska at Salon.com on his Patreon page and Tuesdays and Thursdays on the Bob Seska Show at BobSeska.com. He'll have a fresh show this afternoon. I join Bob on his Tuesday shows. Earlier, before Mick Romney's announcement, Democratic Senator Doug Jones of Alabama thought to be a no on conviction since he, too, would be risking his political career in the heart of Trump country. Jones also made headlines. With his announcement, he would also vote to convict and remove Trump from office. Quoting Jones, I did what I thought was the right thing to do. The first attack came from his challenger, Jeff Sessions. Yes, that Jeff Sessions. He wrote, Doug Jones is a foot soldier for Chuck Schumer and the radical left. He is in the Senate to represent Washington Democrats, not the people of Alabama. Don Jr. weighed in on this announcement, too, calling Jones former Senator Doug Jones. And at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, Washington, D.C. time, the United States Senate began to take that crucial vote 
on whether to convict the president and remove him from office. As expected, the yes votes failed to get the two-thirds majority needed to convict, except for Mitt Romney's vote of guilty on Article 1, abuse of power. The votes went along party lines, 52 to 48. The Article 2 vote was as partisan as it gets, 53 to 47, on obstruction of Congress. The first impeachment trial in history without witnesses ended. The president was found not guilty, but clearly was not innocent. A trial without witnesses had ended with acquittal, but not vindication. It became evident in the impeachment trial that the Republican focus on Joe Biden was all about the primary election season, which began this week with Monday's Iowa caucuses. Trump lawyer Pam Bondi made it abundantly clear in a 30-minute attack on Biden in what was supposed to have been a defense of Trump's actions. Outside the chamber, Bondi wondered aloud about the effect these false revelations would have on Monday's Iowa decisions. In a Senate corridor, Lindsey Graham told reporters, there's a mountain of evidence to suggest the Biden's behavior was harmful to the U.S., even though there actually is no such evidence. Simultaneously, a week ago tonight, Trump was in Iowa ahead of that first real test of the candidates. He was there to attack Joe Biden, and he sent Vice President Pence and other Republicans to Iowa to repeat that refrain. It may have worked. Biden wound up trailing Buttigieg, Sanders, and Warren in the Iowa caucuses. The man that both Trump and Democrats considered to be his greatest competition came in fourth And Biden still faces Mike Bloomberg, who's been busy competing outside of Iowa. Biden's loss is Bloomberg's gain. With 97% of the precincts reporting, Amy Klobuchar landed in fifth place with just 12% of the vote. Joe Biden was next in fourth place with just under 16%. Elizabeth Warren was third with just over 18%. Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg tied for first, each with 26% of the vote. The Republicans had made a safe bet. But it wasn't about Burisma. It was that caucuses skew toward liberal candidates. This year's participants were younger than usual. And most importantly, Iowa is not known for its racial diversity. There would be more caucuses and primaries, most of them about the size of Iowa in terms of delegates, and all of them dwarfed by Super Tuesday in early March, where 1,400 delegates are at stake. And the candidates had already evacuated Iowa and headed for New Hampshire the moment it became clear there was a problem with recording the Iowa caucus votes. The Democrats' very first effort to select someone to replace Donald Trump had stumbled out of the gate. And turnout was only moderate, a bad sign for Democrats, their voter base not nearly as eager to be rid of Trump as it was to elect Obama when the turnout was much, much bigger. A bad sign for Democrats, a good sign for Trump. The Democratic primary season began with a bit of chaos. It looked bad. It gave opportunity for Trump publicans and many Sanders supporters to cry out that the caucus was rigged against Bernie. The conspiracy theories immediately began to fly. It played into the trope that Democrats would run the country the way they had run the Iowa caucuses. In truth, the caucuses were not rigged or hacked. Caucus software that had been kept secret to avoid hacking had a coding error that kept the results from most of the state's 1,600 caucuses from being reported. Iowa Democrats were trying to regain the digital edge they had in 2008 with Obama, a lead that had been taken by Republicans in the Trump years. 
Fortunately, it was all backed up on paper, making it possible and a lot slower to get the count right. Iowa Democrats had spent four years trying to improve their caucus system, and the candidates had spent an entire year traversing the state, spending millions of dollars along the way. And then the count was fumbled, delayed, and questioned. It looked bad, and there was no clear winner to lead the path forward. If the mission is to defeat Donald Trump, the Warriors had stumbled off the starting block. Nevada's trying to avoid this kind of embarrassment. It had been planning to use the same app that Iowans used. Now it won't. And it is significant to note that 70% of the Iowa caucus voters agreed on this one thing, that they would support any Democratic candidate who could beat Donald Trump. So there's that. Nothing kills and maims civilians more in war than landmines. Between 15 and 20,000 people die this way every year. Last year, the landmine death toll was up for the third straight year, with civilian landmine deaths coming in at the rate of 20 per day. They have killed children in record numbers. Children account for 40% of the civilian landmine casualties. The last person to be killed by a U.S. landmine in Vietnam hasn't been born yet. Experts estimate it'll take 300 years to clear the rest of them. U.S. landmines have already killed 40,000 people there since the end of the Vietnam War. Since the end of the war. This is one of the most inhumane weapons we know of, says an arms control expert at a nonpartisan research center. Battlefield surgeons say wounds and dismemberments from landmines are among the worst injuries they have to treat. Already banned by 164 countries and by all of our NATO allies, in 1991 the U.S. stopped its production and use of landmines. The difference is they are not banned by the United States as they are in all those other countries. It's only because of an order from, wait for it, President Obama that the U.S. got out of the landmine business, joining the rest of the civilized world. The State Department had worked since 1993 to find and destroy the landmines left behind from past battlefields in 100 countries. The State Department spent nearly $3.5 billion to do this. Obama did it, though. Therefore, the moratorium had to go. This week, the Trump administration announced it's bringing back landmines. The Pentagon says these are safer landmines because they deactivate after a period of time. But as an arms director for Human Rights Watch points out, like any microchip-based electronic device, there are going to be failures. How much less dangerous remains to be seen. Landmines make the U.S. tough and deadly to children. And while we were all watching the impeachment trial, Trump expanded his Muslim ban, including six new countries, including Nigeria, Myanmar, and Kyrgyzstan. Nearly a third of a million Nigerians already live in the United States, most of whom came here as students. People in two of the countries on that list, Sudan and Tanzania, would be banned from applying for the U.S. visa lottery. The new travel ban goes into effect February 22nd. The new total for countries subjected to Trump's Muslim ban is now 13. Lawmakers in the House are working to restrict a president's authority to limit travel, but that idea is expected to die on Mitch McConnell's desk. Also during the impeachment trial, 
in Montana, a state lawmaker told a group of his fellow Republicans he thinks the Constitution says socialists can be jailed or even shot just for being socialists. It does not. He repeated that later for a local newspaper reporter who got state rep Rodney Garcia to admit he doesn't know where that's found in the Constitution. Still, he refused to walk it back. The Montana Republican Party wasted no time in rebuking Garcia. But Republicans across the country from Trump down are using the word socialist to describe several of the Democratic presidential candidates, particularly the one who uses the term Democratic Socialist with pride, Bernie Sanders. In Kansas City, Missouri, a radio station has begun airing Russian propaganda programming for six hours each day. KXCL, which airs on 1 a.m. and 2 f.m. stations, is giving over its prime time to the Russian government from 6 to 9 in the morning and from 6 to 9 at night. KCXL bills itself as the station that'll, quote, tell you the things the liberal media won't. It is now doing that with help from a radio network known as Radio Sputnik. Some cable and satellite services, meanwhile, have already been offering RT, the Kremlin-controlled TV network, dedicated to spreading Russian propaganda in the U.S. and around the world. In New York, lawyers for the famous advice columnist E. Jean Carroll have asked for a sample of Trump's DNA, which they say will match a stain on the dress she was wearing when she says Trump raped her in a department store dressing room in the 1990s. This time it's skin cells. Quoting her, the Donna Karen coat dress still hangs on the back of my closet door, unworn and unlaundered since that evening. She provided a photo of the dress, which she says she kept because she liked the dress and had hoped to wear it again someday. She just couldn't bring herself to do it. Once again, a DNA-tainted dress versus a sitting president. Ms. Carroll makes this claim in her defamation suit against Trump, who claims he's never met her. Carroll says the dress will prove otherwise. There was also this during the impeachment trial. Virginia's General Assembly became the 38th state to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment for Women, which meets the Constitution's requirement of approval by three-fourths of our states. There is, however, a dispute over whether a deadline has passed, a 1982 deadline for that three-quarters ratification. And five states have since rescinded their ratifications, even though the Constitution does not give them the authority to rescind those ratifications. A week ago this afternoon, the attorneys general for the last three states to ratify the ERA, Virginia, Illinois, and Nevada, filed a federal lawsuit arguing it must now be added to the Constitution as our 28th Amendment. The opposition to abortion rights is against the ERA, and Trump is likely to follow its lead. Quoting a constitutional law scholar, I can't imagine it wouldn't go to the Supreme Court. The professor also says, win or not, it could go back to Congress and start all over. And the Washington Post reports that no one knows the long-term cost of maintaining Trump's $18 billion border wall with its sensors and its cameras and its lights and the roads built to access it. Repairing just one panel of the wall can cost up to $10,000. 900 miles of wall system are supposed to be complete inside the next two years. Over time, the wall will be worn down by the elements and by people. At least part of the wall is subject to massive flooding. There's still some question about how those panels will stay up in extreme wind. 
It's expected that money meant for the Coast Guard ships and boats and aircraft would be diverted to the cost of maintaining Trump's $18 billion wall. A Beach Boys boycott and a bag full of drugs in the final segment after this. I have left something out of this newscast. Commercials. Do you miss them? Didn't think so. These reports are beholden to no sponsor and to no big corporation, and there is no subscription fee. So this newscast is free to you, but it isn't free to make. If you'd like to assist in this effort, please click on the PayPal Donate button on the upper right at buzzburbank.com or on your phone just below the title, Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Some very kind listeners schedule a monthly payment. A lot of great books out right now, and there's still a little Amazon button on my page. If you're shopping Amazon anyway, clicking through my website and bookmarking that Amazon page still helps. You may need to turn off your pop-up blocker to see all the useful links on my page, but it is both safe and helpful to do so. Whatever you do, whatever you've done, however you do it, thank you. About 40% of the people in the U.S. live on or near a coastline. And a new report says sea levels rose faster in 2019 than they did in 2018. 25 of the 32 measuring stations along the U.S. coasts show an indisputable rise in sea level, especially along the Gulf of Mexico. Galveston and Rockport, Texas and Grand Isle, Louisiana are in the crosshairs. The threat is greatest along the Gulf and, for that matter, the entire East Coast because, unlike the West Coast, the land on the eastern seaboard is sinking simultaneous to the rise in sea level. Scientists say the acceleration in the rise started around 2013, but that the latest increase shows it's time to alter our planning and to hasten our response. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration warns that if greenhouse gases are not reduced, the oceans could rise by more than 8 feet over the next 100 years. It was a week ago today that the U.N.'s World Health Organization declared the Wuhan coronavirus outbreak an international public health emergency. This time the vote was unanimous. The WHO had passed on that declaration a week before that, but now calls the outbreak unprecedented, adding, we must all act together. Now, the purpose for declaring an emergency is to energize research into treatments and vaccines. And the next day, last Friday, the U.S. government followed suit, also declaring a public health emergency for the same reasons. The Chinese have shared the DNA of the coronavirus to help scientists around the world study it. On Sunday, U.S. officials began to quarantine for two weeks Americans who have returned from China's Hubei province in the two weeks prior. Nearly 200 Americans are now being kept in isolation. It is the first U.S. health quarantine since the one for smallpox in the 1960s. We learned this week that the Wuhan coronavirus can be passed from person to person even before the carrier has any symptoms. But we also learned that the risk of infection here in the U.S. remains low and that most of the cases have been mild. A new report on this year's flu outbreak is due out tomorrow. The latest one reported more than 19 million Americans infected, 180,000 of whom have been hospitalized. This year's influenza persists in 41 of our 50 states this week. 10,000 Americans have died from the flu so far this year. Let's say that again. 10,000 Americans have died from the flu so far this year, including 68 children, with nearly half the country still avoiding vaccines. When you've only got 100 years to live, or less, life expectancy in the U.S. is up 
for the first time in four years. It had fallen in each of the three years before that because of opioid overdoses. But there were fewer overdose deaths last year, dropping for the first time in 28 years. There were also fewer deaths from cancer and lower death rates in a handful of other categories. U.S. life expectancy had fallen by 1.1% in the year before, but rose to 78.7 years in the latest report. That means a baby born today can expect to live that long, more or less. The all-time high in the U.S. for life expectancy was in 2014, when the rate was 78.9 years. The Food and Drug Administration this week approved a drug to help protect people with peanut allergies from accidental exposure. The drug is made from peanuts, designed for children between the ages of 4 and 17 to help them build an immunity to the allergy. New research from the NYU School of Medicine finds that a one-time, single dose of psilocybin can result in tremendously reducing emotional stress in up to 80% of terminal cancer patients. Psilocybin is the active ingredient in psychedelic or magic mushrooms. The study found that the effect of a single dose is good for nearly five years. The aforementioned Rush Limbaugh turned 69 years old on January 12th and experienced shortness of breath. He saw a doctor about it. It's advanced lung cancer. Limbaugh had accused actor Michael J. Fox of faking his Parkinson's symptoms after Fox appeared in an ad endorsing a Democratic candidate who supports stem cell research. The former top 40 DJ who may have saved AM radio by turning it into a talk medium is carried on 600 stations around the country and beyond, including overseas on Armed Forces Radio by popular demand. Limbaugh was sidelined in 2001 with a temporary hearing loss that many believe was caused by his abuse of prescription drugs. He was arrested five years later for manipulating doctors' prescriptions to get his hands on more oxycodone. The charges were dropped when he agreed to go to rehab. Still weighing his cancer treatment options, Limbaugh has not begun treatment yet. He said he had hoped to return to the airwaves today, complete with the aforementioned Medal of Honor. Renowned author Mary Higgins Clark has died at the age of 92. Clark wrote 38 suspense novels, four collections of short stories, and two children's books. She also co-wrote numerous others, including several with daughter Carol Higgins Clark. Most of her novels became made for TV movies, but there are more than 100 million copies of her books in print just here in the U.S. The most notable passing of the week is that of legendary actor Kirk Douglas, who lived to be 103 years old. The star of Spartacus, Paths of Glory, and Lust for Life died yesterday at his home in Beverly Hills, according to the announcement by his son, actor Michael Douglas. As he approached the age of 100, and even after a debilitating stroke, Douglas stood on stage at the Academy Awards, and although no one expected him to speak, he spoke, and for longer than anyone expected, flirting with actress Anne Hathaway along the way. The dimpled chin Douglas was nominated for three Academy Awards in just his first 11 years of acting after being blacklisted in the McCarthy era. Later, he served as a goodwill ambassador for the U.S. State Department and was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 1981 when it still meant something. Douglas once told an interviewer, I've always been attracted to characters who are part scoundrel. I don't find virtue photogenic. He generally rejected the use of stuntmen for his roles, preferring to do the rough and tumble himself, and 
He says playing Vincent Van Gogh at the same age as Van Gogh when the artist committed suicide got into his head. But Kirk Douglas went on to live 103 years, and yet it still seems he's gone too soon. For those of us who never got to see the stage production of the Broadway musical Hamilton, that's about to change. Disney says it's releasing a performance of the play that was filmed at the Richard Rogers Theater with the entire original Broadway cast, including Lin-Manuel Miranda. But we still have a wait ahead of us. The movie hits theaters on October 15th. Bad Boys for Life is again the top movie in theaters this week for the third week running. The Will Smith-Martin Lawrence action comedy has earned nearly $150 million in the U.S. and Canada over the past five weeks. Oscar favorite 1917 is in second place. There are a lot more movies out there, of course, and you'll find previews, theaters, showtimes, and tickets by clicking through my Fandango link at buzzburbank.com. There's a boycott underway targeting the 1960s pop group The Beach Boys, and The Beach Boys' boycott is being promoted by one of the group's founders, Brian Wilson. These days, Brian tours with bandmate Al Jardine, while Mike Love and others perform as the Beach Boys. And that band has agreed to play a concert for the Safari Club International Convention underway today and through the weekend in Reno. The keynote speaker is Donald Trump Jr., and an Alaskan deer hunting trip with him is the top prize in this year's auction. Other prizes include a 14-day elephant shoot in Namibia, a hunting trip to Zimbabwe to kill giraffe, buffalo, and wildebeest, and a 10-day crocodile hunt in South Africa. Guns are sold at the convention where the Mike Love Beach Boys will play. It's a place where hunters can also learn how to build a trophy room for the heads of the carcasses they collect. The Trump administration has loosened restrictions on what trophies can be brought back to the U.S. Hunters are bringing back more elephants and lions. Quoting Brian Wilson's tweet, There's nothing we can do to stop the show, so please join us in signing the petition. The Change.org boycott asks fans to, quote, stop buying or downloading all Beach Boys music, going to Beach Boys concerts, and purchasing any Beach Boys merchandise unless and until the Mike Love Band pulls out of that concert this weekend. Ponzi schemer Bernie Madoff wants early release from prison. His lawyers say the man who cheated investors out of billions of dollars, wiping out people's life savings, has only 18 months to live and they're asking a judge to release him now so he can die outside of prison. At 81, Madoff is reportedly in the final stages of kidney disease and is too old for a transplant. He's served 11 years of his 150-year sentence, and the U.S. Bureau of Prisons has a compassionate release program that also spares taxpayers from the cost of treating the terminally ill. But quoting one of Madoff's victims, I never got a break. Why should he? He's terminally ill. I'm terminally broke. As brick and mortar struggles to survive, it also morphs into something else. Macy's is closing 20% of its stores, 125 of them, and laying off 2,000 workers after a disheartening holiday season. Most of the stores closing have been anchor stores in the few surviving shopping malls. Macy's will also close its offices in San Francisco and Lorain, Ohio and Tempe, Arizona, as well as its headquarters in Cincinnati. The new headquarters will be New York, and Macy's will now open new and smaller stores, Macy's Market, featuring both clothing and food. This week's Highway Spill of the Week did occur on a highway, even if it wasn't exactly a spill. 
Anyway, the cargo this time was unique enough to make the cut. Pennsylvania State Police were on a traffic stop in Erie this week when they heard squeaking. It was coming from some bushes nearby. They investigated. They found five guinea pigs that had been abandoned along the side of the road. Two had already died, but the surviving trio of guinea pigs was taken to a nearby shelter, which has already found homes for the little guys. They are going through bottles of Calvin Klein's obsession like crazy at the Bantam Zoo in Norfolk, England. So if you have any expensive cologne you're not using, especially Calvin Klein, they'd like you to send it along. The zoo has discovered, you see, that big cats like cheetahs, jaguars, and ocelots are greatly attracted to the Calvin Klein colognes and perfumes. Perfume makers use an ingredient called civetone, a synthetic version of a scent found in the anal glands of civets. A civet is a small cat found in Africa and Southeast Asia, and it leaves its scent everywhere it goes. An aroma expert describes this aroma as kind of poopy but kind of floral. So remember, the next time you slap on some Calvin, you may smell kind of poopy. And finally, from the home office in Florida, Santa Rosa County Sheriff's officers this week pulled over a car for speeding along Interstate 10. The officers suspected the two men inside that car were drug traffickers, thanks to the canine officer with them. The dog found in the car meth, GHB, cocaine, MDMA, and fentanyl, uh, and a couple of smoking pipes. The officers probably didn't need to bring the drug-sniffing dog the drugs were inside two cloth bags, each printed with the words, bag full of drugs. <laughs> Buzz Burbank, thanks for listening and your support to the donate button at buzzburbank.com. We'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network.